We're in John 13. We're at the very beginning of the Last Supper in the first couple of verses of John 13. There is a lot of material here that he's going to get into. Now remember the setting. It's going to, we understand it's going to be Thursday evening that he's meeting. It's the Passover supper earlier in the day. Okay, They've got this Passover getting ready. Now remember the meal that's taking place. We understand it. It's the Paschal slash Passover meal. What it is, it's a meal that's very, very, very important to the Jews. It looks back historically. It is their 4th of July spiritual 4th of July uh, that they are celebrating when God brought them out of Egypt but it's also looking ahead towards the kingdom. That they're going to have this kingdom sometime in the future where they'll have this feast with God himself. And so it's done every year at around the same time according to their calendar to celebrate that event and uh, the disciples are gathered. They're in Jerusalem. Now if you're there at Jerusalem for the Passover which was the goal of most Jews, uh, when they're there they have to eat it within the city gates that Thursday evening. It has to be done you know, by the time the second trumpet blows, they blow the trumpet early, it starts, they blow another trumpet at the end, and they have to wrap it up, which would be late in the evening. And so the disciples are told early in the morning, go get this thing ready. We understand it's Peter and John. Jesus sends them into the city, and they're going to have a lot of, excuse me, they're going to have a lot of different busy work to do to get the meal ready. You've got to clean up the room, make sure that there's no leftover uh, from the, um, uh, the uh, unleavened items, there's going, or leavened items, there's going to to be uh, getting the, the products purchased. There's going to be getting the lamb slaughtered in the afternoon. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of lambs being slaughtered in an um, uh, assembly line fashion down in the temple. And so they have to take care of that. And so it's being done now in route to the meal. We're, we're fast forwarding to the evening. Here they go. On the way they're going to have an argument over which is the greatest. And as they're doing that, remember that it happens probably because Jesus has just been talking about the kingdom the kingdom. Um, here a few weeks ago when he talked about the kingdom and said the kingdom is coming, what did, what did James and John's mom ask of Jesus? If my sons can't sit on your right, your left hand. And so they're looking at the kingdom for their benefit. And Jesus, Jesus did talk about the kingdom, that when I come, I'm going to give you rewards. That was Tuesday night's message when he did the Olivet Discourse. And so they have the kingdom on their mind, and he's predicted it, he's talked about it, but he's been saying, I'm going to die. But in their mind, they're thinking kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And so as they come, they're going to have this argument. And part of the reason that the argument plays in, they're sitting at the table, sitting arrangements at the table don't mean much to you and me. Now, they, they probably did. If you flip back to that time when you were a youngster, where all of a sudden there was one time in your life where the sitting arrangement may have made a difference, when you could move from the kid's table to the big table. Okay, you remember those times. Well, for them, they had the sitting arrangement. It was just, you know, wherever you sat, that was order of priority and um, honor in their mind. And so that's Jewish thinking. That probably lent to the argument. I get to sit closest, that type of thing. And so Jesus, on his way, according to Luke 22, he gives them a quick lesson that be not like the Gentiles, have a servant's heart, serve one another. And they get there and they have this argument. Now they get to the room. The room would have probably been shaped the table like we show there, a U-shaped table. Some argued John Mark's home, we don't know. Uh, but they get there at the table and they're sitting there and it's going to lend, the way they're sitting or reclining this way, it lends to a couple things that happen in John 13 where it talks about the disciple that leans upon his breast. Well, if you're on this side, you want to talk to Jesus and he's over here, you would turn this way possibly and your shoulder would rub against his chest. That would make sense. As well, to do foot washing, it would be very easy to get up and start washing feet. You're not crawling under the table 
like in our chairs, but the feet are already extended. So it was very convenient during the meal that Jesus could do that. And so that all plays into the story. So what they do is they approach. Now we ended up last week in John chapter 13, and as John records this, he wants us to understand Jesus' state of mind. He gives us two different different sentences that are very, very important, revealing the mind of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1 of John 13, before the feast, Jesus knew his hour was come that he should depart from the world and uh, go to his father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them. And then, so he gives us this, this one verse, actually, I have down too. He's talking about his knowledge that Jesus, at this moment, he is fully aware of his timetable. He points out that he's got everything from the father coming to him. He, his authority is there. He hasn't lost control. This is really important because a lot of the movies that are going to come out this week, how do they portray Jesus? That all of a sudden he's a victim of circumstances. He kind of, things started spinning out of control. That is not true. That is not the gospel account. And uh, especially it's going to talk about his love towards his disciples unto the very most. Okay, it's when it says he loved them unto the end, that isn't the idea that he loved them up until he died on the cross. It's not the word the end is not a time word. It is a volume word. It is he loved them fully. He loved them as completely as possible. He loved them to the fullest. And so the writer is giving us details about Jesus and it starts off in John 13 and he's putting it down for a reason I think. He's going to tell us about the greatness of Jesus Christ. Now the great Jesus Christ, what does the next verse tell us he do? There's a contrast here between the verses. He is fabulous, he is awesome, he is great, and then what does he do the next verse? Supper being ended, he starts washing feet. And so there's a huge lesson that, that John is trying to, through the inspiration of the Spirit, to get across to us that the most predominant, the most preeminent individual in the room is going to do the lowliest of tasks. And so he begins the washing of the feet, and that just highlights the entire account by giving us this information about Jesus. <clears throat> so here's the status, just to, in case any of you are here this morning and don't understand that foot washing experience. Okay, what do we know about it. It's very simple. We know that the foot washing was very, very common in that culture. When people come into your house, what is your typical response when you get guests? What do you offer them? Usually something to drink. You take their coat. Okay, you give them a seat. That's typically what we do in our culture, okay, that, that we do that type of thing. In their culture, it was part of this offering some of this getting, getting set. When they first come into the place, it's to wash their feet because the roads were dirty, because they wore sandals. It was a very pragmatic practice that what they did. And so it's usually done both as an act of refreshing and cleansing. Okay, and you understand that if somebody rubs your feet, that there's a refreshing to that, and so it's usually done in the in the pecking order of a household. The lowliest of the servants, if they have servants, the lowliest person in the house would be the one that would do this, and it's done normally before they get seated around the table. It's done in the initial part of coming into the house. You do it more towards the entryway of the house than you would when they all of a sudden get all the way in and they recline at the table. This time it's totally different. This time nobody washed the feet, though two men 
men were put in charge of making sure they hosted the meal. Neither one of them does it. It's done after the guests are sat, seated at the table. It's done by the master. And it's, uh, you know, by the way, it's done in a way that's very easy to do. Okay? And it's done in the course of the meal, according to comparing some of these gospel uh, passages. It seems like it's into the meal a little bit, about the time in the meal that the leader or the, the person in charge would begin to give lessons about the history, why we do this, what these items mean. And so in the course of the meal, he gets up and does something that was neglected by the others, and he's going to do it at the time of the meal when there's spiritual lessons to be taught, which makes it even more impacting. And it seems like Jesus is trying to teach spiritual lessons. In fact, go to verse 17. In verse 17, he clarifies that he is trying to teach something. He doesn't, verse 17, say, um, happy are you if you do these things, or blessed are you if you do these things. Okay? The word blessed or makarai is the idea that you are going to have peace and joy internally. It's the idea of the Jewish, the uh, Aramaic idea of shalom. It's the idea you're going to have this, this blessing inside if you do. And what's interesting is not just know, okay? You know, happy are you if you do these things that you know. It's not just having knowledge, it's action. If you do, and it's not one item, it's multiple items, these things. And so he's giving them an illustration of different Christian service or acts that they can do or lessons they can take that will produce real joy in their heart and their life. I think part of it is the, is the act of serving one another. I think there's other aspects of it that we want to look at that'll, that'll untie and, uh, and unravel as we begin the story. As we go through, Jesus starts washing the feet. Peter's response when Jesus comes to him, whether he's first, second, third, we don't know. Jesus knowing all things that the Father had given all things in his hand. He comes from God. He rises from the supper. He laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after he pours water into the basin, began to wash the feet, wiped them with the towel. Then comes he to Simon Peter. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answers and said, what I do you don't understand at this point, but you shall know or understand hereafter. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Any any interesting observations here about Peter. Are there any contradictions in Peter's statements? He's made two of them. Do you see any contradiction whatsoever? What are you, Lord, what are you doing? You shall never. There's a really obvious contradiction. Okay. He calls Jesus what? He calls him Lord. And then what does he tell him? Okay, then he turns around and says, you won't do what you want to do. Obvious contradiction. How can you call him Lord and tell him what to do with yourself? Okay, if you're calling him Lord and Master, he gets to do whatever he wants to do. There's a contradiction here. And Peter's response right, right away is, you can't do this. Why do you think Peter felt that way? Is it because at this moment Peter fell out of love with Jesus? Do you think that's a possibility? He got angry with Jesus. That's not true. Because later on, what, is G, what does Paul say, uh, Peter, excuse me, what does Peter say he's going to do? He, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, no, I won't. I will even, I'll die for you. So this is not a love statement. This is not, a, you know, getting bent out of shape like a Judas. Why does Peter say, you, you are not allowed to wash my feet? Stinky feet, embarrassed by his feet? He feels, what did you say, Mike? Okay, it's not Jesus' duty to do that. Anything else that adds right with that? It's the servant's job, okay? Anything else? 
Who's the, who prepared this meal? Peter. Who should have been the one doing it? Peter was put in charge. Peter and John. Do you think there's, a, there's an embarrassment of not doing your own work, your own job? Okay, whatever, for, whatever you want to put in there. Jesus' response is, Peter, you don't understand. But you've got to let me do what, you, what I want to do. By the way, does Jesus ever do anything in our lives we don't understand? Okay, a lot of it. Okay, then Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. What is the next statement Jesus makes? If you don't let me wash your feet, you have what? You have no part with me. The word is you have no communion or fellowship with me. So Peter's response is, wait a minute. If washing my feet determines how close we are as buddies, what's the impulse of Peter going to think? Give me a bath. Okay, if this determines that we're on good terms, well, then you can, you can do more than my feet. You can do my back. You know, you can wash, wash me all over. And so Peter, being as impulsive as he is, he responds. And Jesus is going to teach Peter a lesson through this and the others because he goes on and his next statement is, you know, after Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands, my head. And he, Jesus says in verse 10, he that is washed needs not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. And that makes perfect sense to us in the old, good old King James English. And there's no questions. Not Okay, so there's, there's a real clear statement made here, but we kind of get lost. What it is, is the wording that he uses, he that is washed. He's going to use two different words that our English only brings one word out. Okay, he says, he that is washed, somebody who is bathed completely. He uses the word here that we give you up on the wall. He says, need only to rinse off. He that has been bathed. And that makes perfect sense. If you went down the street, and by the way, let me remind you, on Passover morning or afternoon before the meal, what is part of the preparation for the individuals who are involved with it? We talked about it earlier. They have to take a bath, they have to trim their hair, and they, they take care of their nails. It's a hygiene day. So they have already all taken a bath earlier that day. So that, that plays into this. He that has already bathed and has walked from the bathhouse up to this house, he doesn't have to get bathed all over, but he should, because of the dusty roads, rinse off the feet. Okay, he's playing with what's happened already that day in the terminology. And so he says that, he, you know, because that person's been cleansed already, he only needs to rinse off. Then he makes a statement that, is, that brings verse 10 into the spiritual realm. He says, you are not all clean. Wait a minute. According to Jewish custom and culture, they've all been bathed that day. Is he saying, one of you has B.O.? Okay. No, that's not his statement. He brings it into the spiritual realm. In fact, John clarifies it because he says in verse 11, for he knew who should what? Yeah, that's why he said you are not all clean. And so John, under inspiration, is saying Jesus' statement in verse 11 is not about hygiene. It's about spiritual cleansing. And so the lesson here is not about the physical aspect. It's about a spiritual aspect. He that is bathed all over doesn't need to bathe all over again. He only needs to rinse off his feet. Put that in modern-day terminology in the spiritual realm. He that is born again, doesn't need to get born again all over, but he does need to make, make daily confession. Make daily confession. 
Okay, and what's the problem that Jesus had? Not everybody at that meal was totally born again. There's somebody there that's not born again. That's somebody we all know who it is, right? Okay, it's Judas. And so there's a lesson here. There's two lessons so far. One is you better let me, you better let me do what I want or you don't have fellowship with me. That's a lesson to Peter, okay? That yieldedness equals fellowship, okay? No yieldedness, no fellowship. There's another lesson about spiritual cleansing. In fact, there's a whole bunch of them that take place. Jesus is using the occasion to teach his disciples major, major lessons. And the lessons we can just start laying out this way. They're a clear lesson about salvation and confession. The lesson is that true disciples are in need of getting saved just one time. Just one time. Out of verse 10, you only need to get born again once, okay? You must be born again and again and again and again and again like a stuck needle on a record for those who know what I'm talking about. It is wrong theologically. That doesn't happen, okay? He says, but they need daily cleansing. That's you and me, okay, who are born again. Do we need cleansing on a daily basis to rinse off from going through life? Absolutely. That's what we need. Jesus knew that not all of his disciples were born again, that Judas was a traitor. Yet, this is interesting. He, Judas, lesson after lesson, chance after chance, to get involved with spiritual cleansing. That Jesus would reach out and say, Judas, I'll cleanse you. I'll cleanse you. Judas, uh, you know, he's going to give him the sop. Judas, I'm not rejecting you. You're rejecting me. Okay, and so Jesus, as much as he knows what Judas is doing, he's still trying to be gracious to him to bring him to salvation, which he rejects. Let's keep on going. You and I should give multiple opportunities, like Jesus did to Judas, for repentance. We never know, we never know if somebody will repent. Have you ever, have you ever worked with somebody or have a relative that you've witnessed to time and time and time and time and time and time again, and you think, they're just never going to get saved. They've rejected for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. We don't know. We don't know. Do some people get saved at the very end of their life? Sure, sure. And it might take dozens and dozens of years. You and I need to have that same spirit of enduring and giving out the gospel. Spiritual cleansing is needed by all, even, isn't this interesting? He's the first pope, according to some churches. Yet did he need cleansing? Absolutely. The apostles needed cleansing. Important thought. Spiritual cleansing is not something we can do for ourselves. It was something that Jesus did. Well, if that's the lesson he's teaching, if it's implied in here that part of the lesson is spiritual cleansing, no wonder he did it. He's the only one who can provide cleansing. Let's go on a little bit more. Christ alone can do it. Daily spiritual cleansing is needed to maintain fellowship with Christ. You cannot have fellowship with the Lord. Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you, there, there's no communion with me. There's no closeness with me. That's, that really plays into our worship this morning. That we have to have a time of cleansing before we can come for worship or we hinder our fellowship with Christ this day. Keep on going. There are clear lessons about the Lordship. That is the Peter yielding to letting Jesus wash his feet. Even the most godly of disciples can fall into the trap of calling Jesus Lord but t- treating him like a servant. Okay, that's unfortunate. We can, all of us can do that. We are just like Peter. We sing the songs. We say the words. But that doesn't mean we act or walk the walk. Okay, and so you and I have to be challenged on a regular basis. Are we really letting him have lordship? And sometimes, sometimes isn't this true? The lordship really gets challenged when he does something with our bodies that we don't like. Our family that we don't like. When all of a sudden health or jobs Something that comes and we don't understand what he's doing, it is tougher to say, I'm yielded to you. 
It's tougher to say, I'm yielded, when we don't even know where we're headed for. And so Jesus is, is wanting to be Lord of our lives as well. That yieldedness, that's the close fellowship. The disciples who tell Jesus what they cannot do, what he can or cannot do, they especially need the cleansing. They need to make the confession. And so there's two big areas that he's dealt with so far. Lordship, um, spiritual cleansing, and there's an obvious lesson just by the action that he does that he picks up that we read on as we go a little bit. That it says, okay, uh, he knew who should betray, verse 12. After he had washed their feet, he took his garments, sat down again, and said, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say, the servant is not greater than the Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, plural, happy are you if you do them. By the way, the if at the beginning of verse 17 in the original language is since. Since you already know these things. They've been, I made them so clear to you. Since you know these plural lessons, happy are you if you do them. And so what he has here is he's saying, take lowly tasks. Now it could be, it could be that the lowly tasks that they're going to act out, even in that day, would be to continue to wash one another's feet. That makes perfect sense. That was a part of their culture. That was a part of their servanthood mentality. That's what you would do in that culture. And so he's talking about doing lowly tasks to be able to minister to one another, meet the need, reflect Refresh one another. Help one another. Don't, don't be so caught up with your, your cliques. Hey, by the way, do you remember during the missions conference we heard how hard this is for some different groups? That in different groups they have the caste system. Do you remember hearing that? Did that register with you? That certain groups don't, don't minister to certain other groups because of the economic stature or the family stature stature that they just they, they don't fellowship together they don't minister together why because i'm i'm different than you i'm better than you good thing in america that never happens okay we don't have problems with racism do we do we have problems with econ- class envy yeah, okay, so and the same thing can happen in our country that, that comes for different reasons. And so he's saying, okay, now come on, have a servant's heart. Now we can bring many lessons, let's just do a few real quick, okay, that we can draw to ourselves. We disciples are not exempt from falling into the same game as others that is vying for prestige, for position. Do you know what part of this meal I'm talking about? What were they arguing about when they first came into the meal? Yeah, and what did none of them take action to do? Serve one another? He had just said it on the road. He just told them, stop your arguing over who's better, serve one another. And they didn't. They didn't. Now, maybe it's not you, but this is me. I can hear a message, even one that I preach, and the next week not do it. I'm probably the only one in the room that struggles that way. Okay, But I hear something... And then all of a sudden, it's easy to go back to the eight, same old, same old. You know, the temper, the anger, the, the pride, the, you know, the sharpness, the shortness. And so he just preached to them in the, stop the arguing. You, you, you're like you did with your kids? Growing up, you guys get along. Yeah, right, you told them, that, that settled it. You, you scolded them once, and then they never had problems again. Yeah, yeah, Right? You guys better stop arguing back there. This, the, I'm going back in the days now. You guys get on your side of the hump, inside the back. You, you breathe your air out of that window. You breathe your air out of that window. And within two miles, 
We're right back to it. Okay. So Jesus is doing that with the disciples and they're, they're just rep- repetitively doing this. And before I throw too many stones at them, you know, what about us? Here we go. Jesus strongly, and this is the point, strongly and repeatedly has one message that, he, that he's really stressing this evening. Serving, 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 serving. Why is that? Why is serving so important for these disciples? Because within days, he's gone. They better stay together or this whole ministry is going to, what, what's going to happen? It's going to fall apart. Okay. Is unity in the body of Christ critical? Oh, my word. I think we underestimate the unity factor of serving one another, of yielding to one another, of not playing and, uh, the game of politics and church. And just, it's a servant ministry to serve one another. Jesus practiced what he preached. Okay, he said service, he did it. We are to put others first in all occasions and settings. Let's take it a little bit further. This is where I think it, for me, it is, the battle is. It should be done in practical little ways. Look for the everyday little ways, the customs, the cultures of letting others. It's something so simple. Something so simple that we, you want to teach your kids. Little things is let others go first in the line. It's very simple, but is it, is it educational? Is it important? Okay, those little details of life that we can be instructing. Although he was the greatest, he sought. That's the key word that I want to stress. He sought to serve others in everyday ways. Though he's the greatest, he didn't have to stay there. Even those who should have served him. Even those who should have been doing the service to him. He's out there, he's serving him. Even those he knew would do him harm. Even those that he knew would betray him. In fact, how many in this meal are going to disappoint him that by, the, by the next few hours? All of them. All of them. And still he's serving, he's reaching out, trying to minister to them. And he ends up saying, follow my example. It's very clear, okay? Serving others, serving others, serving others, serving others. And by the way, when we serve others, we can do the, uh, here, here's the challenge. We can do the action and still not be serving. Is that a truism? How so? The heart. It's a heart matter. Okay, it's a heart matter because sometimes we can do things. I mean, none of you have ever done this kind of thing. Deb can ask me to do a project at the house that, that is inconvenient, and I will do it. But in my mind, the full few minutes I'm doing it, I'm complaining. Nobody else would do this, I'm sure. Okay. That I'm the only, the only one that would do that to just say, oh man, a days doesn't she respect my time? Why doesn't she, you know, I'm tired too. Why doesn't she do it? She only has to do the laundry, the cooking, the cleaning. You know, I just have to come home and make sure the chair works. You know, why can't she be a little bit more kind to me? Okay, in that complaint. So I do it, but if I'm doing it with a grumbling spirit, there's a huge difference there, so we have to follow the example. Such, and here's the key, such humble service. Here, isn't this a lesson we need to teach the millennial generation? Okay? Serving others is where joy is at. Okay? Now I'm picking on, a, I'm picking on one whole group, and I know it's not one whole group. But isn't there a truism that we're losing this idea that real joy comes by giving? Real joy comes by serving rather than being served. Okay. And it's not just the millennials. Where did they learn that from? Us. 
Okay. And so Jesus says, okay, you want real joy? Serve others. Serve others. Serve others. Serve others. Tremendous lesson. Challenging lessons. Just, you know, real pointed lessons. Then he continues on, and for some, this is me. Now, none of you would struggle this way, but sometimes as I go through his sermon that he's preaching this evening, it's like there's a disconnect. He is all over the place, and yet he's not when you put it all together. Because right after he says that, he says, verse 18, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Who's he talking about now? Okay, he's bringing Judas into the picture. Now I tell you before it comes to pass, okay, that um, you know, there's going to be a betrayal, that you may believe that I am. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me. He that receives me receives him that sent me. Um, what, what, what are you talking about? Okay, what he does is now he moves into a section where he identifies Judas more clearly. Okay, he knows Judas is going to betray. And as he starts off, he's just been talking about the idea of serving one another, serving one another, having unity with one another. You're not all clean. And then he makes reference to Judas. That makes sense. He's just said, you're not all clean. There's a problem with somebody here. And he's going to start identifying who that somebody is. And he says, I'm going to tell you now so that you would know, okay, before it comes to pass that somebody's going to betray me. Why is that of any concern? Why is it of any concern that he says to them that he that eats bread with me shall lift up against me? And I'm telling you, verse 19, before it comes to pass, that you may believe that I am he or the Messiah. Why does he have to point that out now? Okay, he's pointing out he knows all things. Is this going to be helpful to them after they find out Judas is betrayed? How so? Okay, now think think with me. Okay. They're going to find out within a few hours Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus got arrested. Why is it important that Jesus predicts it to them so that later on what could they think later on that he makes, wants to make sure they won't think? That he got caught off guard. That this all happened accidentally. That they were mistaken that Jesus was the one. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, because if all of a sudden they have their high hopes and then their hopes are dashed, like, wait a minute. Judas betrayed him. What are they going to remember later on? He told us this would happen. He tied this to Scripture. This is exactly what the Bible said. He really is in charge. He really is sovereign. He really is in control. This wasn't an incident, an accident. So it's going to highlight his deity, his messiahship that they're going to need because are they going to have moments of doubt in these next days? Oh yeah, oh yeah, this is a really critical statement that he's going to make. Okay, so he tells them now then so that they are not going to doubt later on and so it plays into it real well. Okay, because they, could, they need to be assured that he isn't doing this accidentally. And, and remember, remember, they don't want him to die. How do we know that? Go, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. How do you know they don't want him to die? Yeah, and then what does Peter do when the soldiers come? He tries to defend Jesus. Okay, so again, the disciples are going to go through a gamut of emotions. He wants them to make sure they have their heads on straight. When the dust settles, they need to remember this, that Jesus knew what was going on. They need to remember, they need to remember that Jesus was reaching out to even the one who was betraying him. What's that going to highlight in Jesus' life? 
love, forgiveness, compassion. It is very important because when they get to the point that they are ready to preach, who do they have to love and go to the very first moment? Who's their first message to? The people who called for Jesus to what? To be crucified. Okay? And so they got to remember this example of Jesus, his compassion, his control, that all this plays into because they got to minister to these same people later on. And so it's very critical, that statement that he's going to make. Okay? We go a little bit further. Okay? So he goes on in verse 21, and he makes this comment as he says, okay, and by the way, catch verse 21. Okay? We, when they give us sides, when they give background information, it's very important. What's the little tidbit of background information you get out of verse 21? You get a sense. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus is in control. He knows his time. He loves to the very end. He knows the Father has put all things into his hand. But at the same time, what do we read about in verse 21? He's troubled. Okay, we're getting an insight into his heart, into his spirit. Okay, he's troubled, troubled, troubled. Okay, he's torn apart. Um, Verily, verily, I say unto you that, and he's very pointed. There's no doubt. One of you is going to betray me. Oops, now they got it. They looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Okay, do, do you remember what the other gospels say? Verse 22 says they doubted about who he spake. What did the other gospels say they'd say? Anybody remember? Is it, who sa- asked that? They all do. Why in the world are they all asking, is it me? Is it me? Normal human response would be, it's got to be her. It's not me, because I would never do that. It must be him. Why are they asking about themselves? Any guess? I, I don't have an answer. Any guess? Do you, do you, do you think, let's, take, let's fool with your doubt. Do you think they feel a little bit of guilt about just what's happened? Right? Because what did he just do with them? Don't, die, don't, don't separate the instance. What has he just done for several minutes? What do you think they felt when he was, what would you have felt if you were there while he was washing your feet? Embarrassed. Not emulated. Not, oh, look at me, I'm getting my feet washed. Okay, you would have felt like, I'm a heel. Do you think they all, they're, they're all at the heel position yet? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. Okay, and so you know, statements. Um, you know, they, they, in their response, okay, they're doubting themselves, whatever they think. What I find interesting is who didn't they doubt? Who didn't anybody point and say, it's got to be him? Yeah, nobody says it's got to be Judas, okay? Which, by the way, that shows that Judas is really playing the game well, okay, that he's involved. And so Peter wants clarification because there's nothing, there's nothing clear. In this, the other gospels say Jesus responds to whom I give the sop. But in this one... Peter, Peter is going to clarify, and we have, he says he speaks to the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's leaning close to him, which apparently Jesus is in the middle, so right there um, on his left side apparently be is where John is, and John is going to lean back if he's on his right, by the way, typically whether you're right or left-handed, you would be on your right elbow, and so um, on his right elbow, he's leaning back, he's talking to Jesus, and he asks the question, okay, and so Simon Peter beckons to, to John ask him. Ask him who it is. Who it is. And then he lying in Jesus' breast says, Lord, who is it? Verse 26. He it is to whom I shall give the sop when I have dipped. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to, what's your Bible read? He gave it to Judas. Okay? And then, watch what, this confuses me. Okay? He gave it to to Judas. 
the Iscariot clearly defines. It's the Iscariot. It's the one who is son of Simon. And after the stop, uh, after the stop, excuse me, uh, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, whatever you do, do quickly. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent Jesus spake us unto Judas. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things which we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went out immediately, and it was night, etc., 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 and I don't understand this. This is me. If Peter asks who it is, it's going to be the person I give the sop to, he turns and gives the sop to Judas, then everybody knew it was Judas. And if Judas gets up and starts walking out, what would you have done if you knew it was Judas? Tackled him? Take him out? Why didn't anybody act? Why didn't anybody do anything? Okay, and so here, here's the possibilities. By the way, the sop is a is part of the Paschal meal. It's a bread with some sauce and and some uh, meats inside, and it's dipped, and then it's passed around, and it's usually given in an in during during part of the meal, given as a sign of honor. Now, here is why the suggestions are: Why didn't this give Judas away? And they make total sense. There are some who have suggested that the sop isn't just given to one person. It is given to several in the meal. And Jesus could have given it to several or could have given it to all of them. But Judas is the one that's identified here. Okay? So that he got it first. But then so did the other's gift. That's a possibility. Some of the books that I read, they suggest that the, the, that the sop goes to everyone at the meal as a sign of honor, but just in pecking order. Um, others respond this way, that when Jesus responds to John, John is this close to Jesus. Jesus is here. He's that close. And he says, who is it? Jesus says, it is the one to whom I give the sop. Which, if he says it in such a way that only John hears... Okay? That's a possibility. Does it ever happen in a meal when you have a lot of people that the ambient noise, you lose a statement? Okay, that's the possibility. Okay? It could be that if that happened, and John didn't get it. Okay, John just didn't get it. But is this a possibility that the disciples didn't understand everything? Okay, so far, they haven't understood this, resur- uh, this, this uh, crucifixion. And he's already said, it's going to happen in two days on the Passover. I'm going to be crucified. And still, they don't get it. Okay, so it could be just the thickness. The others couldn't, uh, the others couldn't imagine Judas being the betrayer, so they missed the obvious. They are still hung up on, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And so Judas is up and he's gone. And they're thinking, the passage says, they thought he was going out to do the charitable deed that was part of Passover is give out charitable gifts. And uh, something should have been done earlier in the day, but they want to make sure it gets done. You know, get the offering in, so to speak, before it's too late uh, at the end of the day. We don't know, but it shouldn't confuse people like me that say, why didn't it give it away? There's all these possibilities that it happened. But Jesus did stay, and afterwards, does it ever happen? Something big happens. You have no clue when it's taking place. And afterwards, you look and say, oh, that makes sense now. Oh, that makes sense now. Oh, that's what he meant when he said work, finances, you know, you sign a contract and you get so much overload of information. Oh, that's why that portion of that document, I just signed away the firstborn. Oh, I didn't remember that. Okay. Those things, they happen in our life, don't they? 
events and we don't put it all together right away, but afterwards when we think about it, it goes, oh, that makes more sense. So that's what you got going later on in the recording is they've got clarity in mind now. So they're recording the information. So Jesus says, whatever you do, go out and do it quickly. And uh, then Satan enters in at this moment, which we've talked about. The others don't suspect Judas. They assume he's doing charitable work. Okay? And uh, what's interesting is the timing. Jesus, obviously, obviously remember, he's in charge. He dismisses Judas. He's in charge of the rest of the evening. He's in charge of the meal. Okay? He isn't losing control. Jesus, Judas, Judas is, you know, has chosen to do this. Jesus is not, a, uh, is not in a whirlwind losing control. He's even saying to Judas, okay, now's the time for you to go. If you're going to do this, now go. And so his death, his betrayal, it's all a voluntary act of Jesus Christ. He could have stopped Judas at this moment. Jesus, again, this is the voluntary substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, which is highlighted in this text. Something else that he dismisses him, and I think this is critical. He dismisses Judas before communion. Because communion is not a universal, everybody involvement service. It is a service that is supposed to be for what type of people? born-again believers, okay? And so we invite born-again believers who are right with the Lord to participate. But Judas, who clearly isn't born again, Jesus says, okay, you know, you're not, you're, you know, you're betraying me out of here. Um, and so what we've got is this spiritual cleansing that goes back to verse 30 we've already talked about, okay? In the sense that Jesus, Jesus is going on, statements where he's just going to make it clear uh, that he went out. And, and some, by the way, some look at the end of verse 30. There's a phrase at the end of verse 30 that's an obvious it's obvious, obvious, obvious if you understand normal, normal lifestyle and procedure when the supper started. What is the obvious statement at the end of verse 30? It's nighttime. Duh. Everybody knows it's nighttime. Is there, several suggest that John has a motif that in his gospel, more than anything else, he talks about light and darkness time and time again. Light Darkness, light, darkness. Is there darkness at this moment? Is it, could, this, could this be just an emphasis? There's a spiritual darkness that is all of a sudden at its peak. Right, because Judas is going out to get the soldiers. Now the ball is rolling. This is the moment Satan thinks he's going to win within the next few hours. Okay, so you have, uh, you have all these different things happening. Now, interesting his words. Watch his words, the key. Look at verse 31. Now. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified. What's he mean by that? Why is it now at this moment the Son of Man is glorified? What in the world? This is what I say that sometimes you look at this whole passage and go, oh, he's all over the place. He, he's, just, he's like the modern day preacher that we say they're on all kinds of rabbit trails. Where is he going with this glory? Does his statement, now is the Son of Man glorified, have anything to do in the sequence of events? Judas getting up and going and betray. Yes. Okay, okay. So it's going to be, is the, death, the betrayal and death of Christ, is God glorified through all this? Absolutely. The death is no mistake. Is Christ going to be exalted through his next few days? Dying and rising again. Yes. And must the betrayer play into this for the death of, of, uh, the, of the Messiah? 
absolutely. There isn't, there, this isn't random thoughts. It just flows. Judas leaves, now I'm going to be glorified. Now am I going to be magnified. My greatness, my sacrifice, it's going to take place. The ball is rolling in more than just rolling. Now it is moving quickly. Uh, it's the, been in the planning stage, but now it's in the action stage. And this is how I'm going to be glorified. And by the way, keep this in mind. The death of Christ, though his heart is, what did he say just moments ago? We read that his heart was what? He was troubled. By the way, it's the same word that shows up. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Don't be pulled apart. Jesus is feeling emotionally pulled apart. Is there the possibility that God is glorified when we are in the deepest, darkest uh, sorts of our trials? That God can be magnified? Yes, even when moments that we are stressed, he can be glorified? What passage comes to mind? When I am weak, you're strong. Okay, there he's glorified. This is what's happening at this moment. It's all about glorification. It's all about magnifying the Father. It is not about peace of mind, peace of heart for us. Okay, at this moment, it's about magnifying the Father, glorifying the Father. So his glorification required his death. His death would glorify the Father because it would show the holiness of God. It would show the love of God. It was just a a magnificent event, though it was a really horrific event. And he says, okay, I'm going to be leaving. Now watch his others as he moves on. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself. There's going to be the exaltation. Verse 32, little children, yet a little while I am with you. I'm, in other words, I'm leaving. I'm leaving, okay? And he says, uh, he says, you shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go you cannot come, so say I now to you. Guys, I'm gone. I'm, I'm going to leave. And you cannot come with me at this moment. You cannot come with me. Okay. By the way, in a few minutes he's going to say, I will come again and receive you unto myself later on. But right now, you can't come with me. This is not saying you can't get into heaven. This is saying now. Now I'm magnified. I'm going to be leaving, and I'm going to come back later on. Okay? I'm going to go meet the Father and return to the Father, and later on you're going to come. With that in mind, guys, I'm leaving. And since I'm leaving, let me tell you something before I go. A new commandment I give to you that you do what? That you love one another. Okay, I got a question for you. Question. How in the world is this a new commandment? Has he ever stated before love? Does the Old Testament ever, is there any commands in the Old Testament? Love one another? Love your neighbor as? Has that ever been stated before? The answer is yes, multiple times. So my question is, you know, why is he saying a new commandment when it's a repetition of something that's been stated so many times? Okay. Let's pick up there in a couple of weeks. Okay. Next week's Easter, uh, we'll not do this lesson, but we'll do it in a couple of weeks.